Uh, In this season that I've been in uh, the pulpit with you, we have been looking at the life of David in a series called Walking with Kings. And today we come to one of my favorite stories, 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of David and Mephibosheth. That's an incredible name. Mephibosheth. I want to see if all of you can say it. Mephibosheth. It was was good. You're doing all right. It'll just make me feel better for when I screw it up later. 2 Samuel chapter 9. This morning's sermon title is Life Changing Love. 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1. Let me read. Let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit of God to move. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we desperately need to hear your word of truth this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move mightily. And that you would cause love, not just to be a word in our vocabulary, but a reality in our lives. God, if in any way that we have just had a lack of love, or we've left our first love, or we've just been hypocritical, when when it comes to love, God, would you teach us, would you even change us on the spot today? You know what we need, you know what we need to hear, and we just open our hearts the best we know how and say, God, move, change us. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, I pray that they would come to know you even today. We ask together in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Well, one day, a few decades back, there was a cameraman who was filming in India. And he was filming a churchwoman for a documentary while she cared for the poor and the wretched of the country of India, specifically the lepers. Now we know leprosy is not only a terrible disease, but leprosy also comes with huge social consequences. Nobody wants to go near them. And on a day when this church woman was cleaning the sores of a leper, the cameraman bluntly said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And in that moment, the woman turned and looked at him and said, Neither would I. And she continued to cleanse the sores of the leper. That is an incredible picture of love. See, everyone around us has needs, but what will it take to drive us towards those needs? Because apparently a million dollars will only take you so far. 
But the Bible tells us of a love that drives people to do things far beyond what money could ever do. A love radically different than the love that we naturally see in our lives and in our community. A love that can even change a life. See, in this series, as we're looking at the life of David, we're talking about how people change. We're talking about why choices matter. We're talking about why your character matters. And today, we come to loving kindness. You got to understand, in Israelite society, faithful love and kindness was the highest of virtues in their culture. And we're looking at it today as exemplified in the life of David. We've learned so far that David is one of the most prominent characters in the Bible. In fact, the Gospels, in the Gospels, Jesus is called the son of David. And this doesn't merely mean that Jesus was a descendant of David, though he is. But it means that in David's best moments, he gives us insight into the very heart of God. He gives us insight into the true king who is Jesus. Now, David doesn't always make good choices. And we're going to talk about that next week. At his worst moments, David shows us our need for Jesus. But in his best moments, he gives us insight into the very heart of Jesus. This story in 2 Samuel 9 is about how David's decisions and actions quite literally changed another person's life. And there's a reason for this. It isn't random. It was not out of a love for money or for fame or for upward mobility or whatever. It was a different kind of love. It was a life-changing love. And the Bible says that all of us can know this love and show this love to others. How? How does that happen? Well, this story speaks to that question in three ways. With a principle, with a pattern, and with a picture. But first of all, in this story, we find that there is a principle to learn. See, when we talk about love, typically our behavior towards others reflects a consumer transaction. What I mean by that is this. The way that we relate to others depends often on what we get out of it. On the payoff. What's in it for me? If I do something nice for you, what are you going to do for me? If I scratch your back, will you scratch my back? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves and we look into our hearts, oftentimes when we reach out to serve other people, we think, well, what am I going to get out of this? Are they going to do this for me in two weeks? Or have other people done this for me? What do I get out of it? That is very often the question behind our acts of service. But here's what you need to understand about love according to the Bible. In stark contrast to the way of culture or even to other religious beliefs, the Bible tells a very different story about love. And it's important to understand that because on the outside, you could see two people performing the very same act of service, and yet inwardly, they're doing it for two very different reasons. One could be doing it with selfish motives. Another could be doing it with selfless motives. And in our culture, if the payoff is adequate, we might even show somebody and call it love. This happens in friendships, it happens with other relationships, and it can even happen in the church. What am I getting out of it? You know, sure, I'll serve, sure, I'll love these people, I'll show up, but what's in it for me? And yet something different is happening here. When David is asking whom he can show kindness to, he is not asking what he can get, he's asking what he can give. In fact, this whole text is driven by three, a word that we see used three times, and it is the Hebrew word chesed, which is simply translated as kindness. Now, the word kindness just seems kind of weak in our culture. Like, you bring me a cup of coffee. How kind? Oh, it's so kind. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe bringing me a cup of coffee is something that is very kind indeed. But kind is just like, oh, that's, like, that's really sweet. How kind of you. How thoughtful of you. But you've got to understand, in the Bible, the word kindness is, is so much stronger. There's so much more substance to it. It is much more robust. In fact, here is my definition of chesed. Chesed is faithful love in action. A compassionate and constant commitment 
to the good of another. This loving kindness, every time you see the word kindness in the Bible, I want you to think of this, faithful love in action, commitment, compassion to the good of others. For hesed is a love that is willing to commit itself to another by making a promise. See, notice what David is doing here in verse one and in verse three. Verse one, he says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then notice what he says in verse three. Is there anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? What's happening there? See, David is showing us in these sentences what is motivating him, what is driving the kindness he is about to show to another person. And I want to point out this. There is a reason outside of the relationship itself. When David is about to show kindness, he's appealing to a reason outside of himself and outside of the person to whom he will show kindness. He is appealing to his friend Jonathan, and ultimately he is appealing to God. And that is why when we talk about loving kindness, when we talk about love, it's not consumer kindness, but covenant kindness. See, covenant love is not based on a preference, it's based on a promise. See, oftentimes we fear, even when I say the word promise, some of you get nervous. And it has been said that we now live in the most non-committal generation that has ever existed. We are afraid of making promises. Maybe we were born and raised in an environment where we saw all kinds of promises being broken. Moms and dads splitting apart in divorce. People breaking their promises to us. And so we live right now in a culture where we feel the freedom to break our promises at the drop of a hat. It's all based on what we get out of it. And we might even use little taglines like, well, my heart told me to break my promise to you. And for some crazy, insane reason, that's okay in our culture. As long as you say anything with the phrase, my heart told me, we're like, well, okay then. My heart told me to leave you for another person. Oh, well, if your heart told you, then you must follow your heart. (laughs) Well, I know I promised to be there for you through thick and thin, but my heart told me otherwise. Really? Well, if your heart told you, are you kidding me? The Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? Have you ever heard people say, well, God knows my heart? Break a promise, you're like, well, I know you're mad at me, but God knows my heart. Yeah, you're evil. He knows your heart. (laughs) Totally. You can bank on it. God knows your heart. (laughs) See, we live in this world in which we feel like we could just, we we don't want to make promises, or when we make them, we can just break them, which raises a question for me and for you. Do your promises lose their binding when you lose your benefits? It's an important question. Maybe right now you're in a particular stage in life and the people around you, maybe even your commitment to the church is based on a promise, but in this season, you're not getting as many benefits as you would like to see. Like, well, if I really made a list, like it's really not happening. I mean, what are people doing for me lately? Not much. And therefore I will loosen my promise and loosen my commitment to this church or to those people. And for some of you, maybe even to your marriage. Do your promises lose their binding when you lose the benefits? If so, it's not chesed. It's not loving kindness. It is mere human love. It is mere consumer kindness. But David shows us something completely different. And what makes it so radical is who this love is being shown to. Now, put yourself in King David's shoes for a moment. David is is in the prime of his life. He had tough years before, but now he's in the palace. Now he's king. All of his enemies have stopped attacking him. I mean, things go really well. He's experiencing a time of success. Now, many of us, the tendency is when we experience a time of great success, the tendency is to be more concerned with protecting what we have. We start hoarding. We start thinking, oh, I got more money this year. I got a raise this year. I don't know if I'm going to give more. I'm just going to like, you know, tighten my purse strings or maybe everything's going really well and I'm not really in need of my friends anymore. So I'm not really going to call them. See, in fact, success has destroyed many relationships. After all, the world tells us if you no longer need anything from that person, then why call them? 
And yet here is David. He's at the height of success. And yet he looks to give not only to someone who won't be able to give him anything back. Notice he gives to someone who could potentially be a threat. Do you know what David's saying? He says, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? David's desire reveals much. Because you may remember, Saul was his father-in-law. Saul was previously the king of Israel. And yet Saul was envious and he was murderous and he tried to kill King David many times. He made himself an enemy of David. But Saul had since died in battle. And it was very normal in those days. If you were a new king, what would you do? You would kill off any potential threats. In those days, you would kill off any potential rivals. You're a king now, and you're like, well, who's out there of the family of the former king? Well, let's wipe them out. Let's get rid of them. In fact, that may have been what David's own advisors were telling him to do. Well, King David, as your PR representative, I suggest that you go and wipe out anyone left of the house of Saul. And yet, what does David say? Imagine the shock of everyone in the palace courts when David said, is there anyone in the house of my enemy that I can show kindness to? Let's be honest. How many of you woke up this morning saying, is there any enemy out there? Somebody who's trying to make my life, you know, just horrible. Is there anyone I could show kindness to this morning? Is that what we all thought? Don't raise your hand. Is there anyone in the enemy camp that I can show kindness to? I mean, imagine a world where this is the kind of question everybody asked. Imagine where, you know, rival neighbors said, can I show kindness to you? Imagine a world where rival companies in corporate America said, is there any rival company we could just show kindness to? I mean, imagine Republicans are like, is there anyone in the Democratic Party we could just be kind to? And the Democrats saying, is there anyone in the Republican Party we could show kindness? Can you imagine? We laugh because we're like, no way, but friends, that needs to happen here. That needs to happen here. Notice this love does not wait for an ideal opportunity, nor does it wait for an ideal person, nor is it driven by a sense of personal lack. David's actions were based on a promise, not a preference. And here's why this matters. Because this kind of love should characterize this church. This kind of love should characterize every person in this room, including myself. In fact, Jesus Christ said that his church should be defined by the love that it shows. When Jesus was spending his final night with his followers, just hours before he would be betrayed and sent to the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat down with his disciples, celebrated the Passover meal, and he gave them a new commandment. And that commandment was this, John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That statement is staggering. Now, if you're like me, you've read this a million times. I'm like, oh, so good. Underline, moving on. Isn't that tragic? All the best verses were like, oh, it's already highlighted. I already took it into my soul. So next chapter. <laughs> Friends, if, if anything is needed, it's for this to sink down into our hearts today. Jesus said, here's the command I give to you. Love others. Love one another. And notice the motive that Jesus is not appealing to. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I want you to love others as long as the church is loving you. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, love others as the church has already loved you. doesn't say that. The motive to which Jesus appeals for this kind of love that you need to show to others is the love he has shown to you. Because he knows our temptation is to get bitter and think, well, this love hasn't been shown to me, so I'm not going to love other people in the church. This is a loveless church. Have they ever read Revelation chapter 2? Yeah, they have. Maybe you should read it again. Jesus said, have, as I have loved you, That's how you're to love one another. And then he goes on to say, the world will know that you're legit, that you are a real living church by the love that you have for one another. I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to just imagine 
Imagine if the only way that people would come to know the truth and love of Jesus in Carpinteria was through this church or through the other churches in the city. And we just stop and imagine the only way that people would come to know the truth of Christ in Ventura, Santa Barbara, the coastlands, or wherever God would call you. Imagine if the only way people would ever find out about Jesus was through the witness of the local church. Imagine if there were no Christian bestsellers. Imagine if there were no Christian websites for the seeker. Imagine if there were no Christian podcasts, films, magazines, or any other publications available to the public. Those things are good. They're right. They're great. We use them all the time. But just for a moment, imagine that none of that existed. That you can't just say, here, here's a link. Listen to that. Let's talk later. Imagine just for a moment if the only way people would come to know the love and truth of Jesus Christ was through the witness of the church. You know what I think that would do? I think that would raise the stakes on how each one of us actually love each other. I think it would raise the stakes on the importance of the local church. And I believe that's precisely what the New Testament does. Because back in the first century, they didn't have websites. They didn't have films. They didn't have these best-selling books. They had the local church. And though those things are wonderful and amazing, I love them, I use them, Some of you might even contribute to them. That is amazing. Those are tools, but may those never become a replacement for the love that you're to show to other people. This is what Christ calls us to, to this kind of love, and that every one of us matters. You might think, well, you know, this church is a little bit bigger. I don't know if I matter. Oh, yes, you do. And we need to learn this principle, this hesed, this loving kindness. We're called to love. And so secondly, we also find a pattern to follow in this story. And I love that we're not only given a definition, we are given a description of this kind of love in the story of David and Mephibosheth. And in this story, look at what it's showing us. A couple of patterns for us to follow. First of all, to do this, we must open our hearts. If we're going to love like this, we need to open our hearts and seek those who are afar off. Think about the backstory. Mephibosheth at this time, was in hiding. David could only find out where he was through this servant named Ziba. And what we discover here is all the more moving. This son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, he was crippled in both of his feet from an accident. Notice the text wants us to keep that in mind. It even ends the chapter by saying, now he was lame in both of his feet. The author, the writer of this wants us to keep in mind the situation that Mephibosheth was actually in. When he was just a little boy, we're told earlier on, news of his grandfather Saul's death meant that their family was potentially in trouble. Because he was part of the the family of Saul. And if Saul was dead, David is reigning, then, then that meant they were in trouble. And we're told that the nurse who cared for Mephibosheth was in great fear and she actually dropped him. And because of that, he became crippled. As she sought to flee, she just dropped him and moved on. So what we learn in this story is that he belongs to the family of the enemy. He is lame in his feet. He doesn't even own his own house. He's in hiding and he's far away. Think about this. This was a risky move for David. It was a very risky move. I mean, all the people who were around David would have probably thought that he was nuts. said, David, why are you doing this? Like why as a first, you know, campaign, as a first act as king, why would you seek someone out like this? Because Mephibosheth would have been seen seen as a rival and he would have been seen as a disgrace. But friends, this is showing us that we must open our hearts. We must open our hearts and seek those who are afar off, even our enemies. Seek to bless them. May that be a priority in our lives where we actually ask, like, who today can I show kindness to even if they belong in the house of the enemy? But it goes farther than that. In this pattern, we not only see that our hearts must be open, but secondly, we must open our mouths. We must open our hearts to those people we're hardened to. And may the Spirit even speak to us today about whom those people might be. But then we must open our mouths and speak words that dignify. See, Mephibosheth 
would know that he was viewed as a rival. He would know that he was viewed as a disgrace. So you can only imagine what was going through his head and his mind as he receives a knock on the door. Mephibosheth, are you in there? Open in the name of the king. And he's probably thinking, oh great, this is it. This is it, I'm done. Terror must have consumed him. He thought everything was fine as long as he was off the radar and the king, the new king, didn't know his whereabouts. So he's obviously filled with terror and fear so much so that we're told in this story that when he arrives in the presence of King David, he literally just falls to the floor. He just falls on his face, prostrate. And then David speaks. And when David speaks, he speaks his name. Now, what do you think that sounded like? Do you think it was harsh? Do you think David said, Mephibosheth? That's what he was expecting. But no, I don't believe it was. I believe it was the opposite. When David was speaking his name, he was showing him dignity. David said, you're not just some nameless exile. You're not just some nobody in a distant land. I am dignifying you by speaking your name. And then notice, he immediately says to him in verse seven, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Because I am gonna show you kindness. See, when we're around people who have great power, we're always afraid they're gonna exploit us. Like, what will they do? And no doubt Mephibosheth felt this way on that day, but David says, I am gonna show kindness to you. And it's not based on what you have done, nor is it based on what you have not done. It's based on a promise, a promise I made to my dear friend, Jonathan, who is no longer with us, and ultimately a promise that is based on me reflecting God to others, and I'm gonna make good on this promise. I think what this is showing us is that our words matter. Listen, what comes out of your mouth affects people probably more than you think. The book of Proverbs says that your words can be like a wholesome meal or they can be like a poison in somebody's life. The book, I mean, the Bible talks so much about our mouths and our words, so much time and attention is given to it. Do you remember the book of James chapter three? Oh, James is such a spicy book. Maybe for you know, your activity this afternoon, you should read the book of James. It's like a slap and a hug at the same time. James like, what are you doing? It's okay, I love you. Stop it, I love you. Like, just back and forth. And James says in chapter three, he spends so much time talking about our mouths, talking about our tongues. He says, your tongue is such a small thing, but just as a small fire could set a whole forest aflame, so your tongue, if it's in the wrong hands, if it's influenced by the devil himself, you can cause havoc in other people's lives. Essentially, what James is saying is this. Whether you are more influenced by hell or the Holy Spirit will be determined in part by what comes out of your mouth. Church, your words are powerful. How are you using them? How will you use them? Will you, will you use them to reflect the truth and grace of God's word or will you use them to bring shame and fear and intimidation into others' lives? Maybe it is that God is wanting to convict you today about what has been coming out of your mouth. And as safe measure, you might even want to ask your spouse. You might even want to ask your close friends like, hey, my speech this week, you know, is it reflective of scripture or is it more reflective of the, of, of the flesh? That's a good lunch conversation to have. You might be surprised by the answer. Your spouse is like, well, I've been meaning to talk to you about it. Our words matter in David when he could have just intimidated this man. He didn't. He speaks words of dignity. And one of the ways in which you and I can show love is by speaking words of truth and grace. But it doesn't end there. We're not only to open our hearts and seek those who are far off like David. We're not only to open our mouths and speak words of truth and grace and dignity, but thirdly, we open our hands. That is to say, we must back up our words with actions. See, we live in a culture where the word love is thrown around all the time. In fact, we may even use it so much that it's just flippant. It's not actually backed up with any substance. I mean, we say it to everybody like, love you. Love you, bro. Love you, girl. Or, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that you would say there. Like, love you. See you later. Love you. Well, 
But are we showing it? There's nothing wrong with that. But are we actually showing it? David didn't just bring Mephibosheth all the way to his palace and just say, hey, I just want to be kind to you. See you later. Peace out. He didn't end there. What does he do? He says, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to actually give you property. The land that had belonged to Mephibosheth was not claimed because David had taken the throne. So David goes against culture once again, against expectations, and he gives him that land. And not only that, he says, I'm going to give you servants. They're going to reap the produce of the land, and you're going to have an income. I mean, this is amazing. He says, I'm going to give you land. And then it goes even farther than that. At the end of verse 7, he says, but you won't even need to eat that produce because I'm going to give you a place at my table. Culturally, this is huge. Everyone else around David is thinking, has he lost his mind? He calls somebody from the enemy camp and says, you're going to eat in the palace? Like they're going to be there at, at the royal dinners? This is incredible. Notice what David is doing. David is going far beyond restoring what was lost. He's giving Mephibosheth something he never even had. He's not just saying, hey, you lost your land. I'm going to give it back. I'm also going to give you something that you never even wanted to have. That you never even could dream that you could have. And so at this point, if you're Mephibosheth, you're thinking, oh, okay, so you don't want to kill me. Okay, wait, you're giving me lands. Okay, I have employees. I'm going to make money like this entrepreneurial startup. Like you're giving that to me. And now I get to eat with you. I mean, David is saying, I am giving you all access, all expenses, paid position as a royal guest. David is giving him place. He's giving him position. He is giving him privilege. And what I want you to see in that is that this kind of love is not theoretical. It's not a nice idea. It's not a philosophy. It's practical. Something has actually been done. See, practically, you and I, we have a responsibility to care for those who are in need, to care for those who are unable to care for themselves. If you're wondering in what way you should use your gifts or your time, your resources, look for the people in need. Look around you for the people who are unable to help themselves. I mean, it's incredible if you stop and think and look over 2,000 years of church history. When you look to the very origins, even of hospitals, they were birthed out of Christian scripture. You can even read some of the pagan letters written by rulers in the first few hundred years of the church, how even the pagans were put to shame because of the love and service that the church was showing to the poor and to the needy. Letters like, man, these people are putting us to shame like we care for our own, but they even care for people that don't even belong to their tribe. Now, is this risky? Yes, it is. Am I calling you to risk? Yes, I am. This is a love that involves risk. You may get nothing back. You may even be responded to with some kind of animosity or rejection. And yet, this is what we're called to. Now, some of you in this moment might think to yourself, well, nobody ever did this for me. That might be easy for others to say who've experienced all this kind of love and kindness and, you know, this place and privilege and all that. But nobody ever did this for me. Maybe you grew up in a very hostile environment, very damaging environment. Maybe there was very little kindness in your life growing up and your experience. And I would just say, David could say the same. David could say the same. You want to talk about a dysfunctional family? David's father-in-law always tried to kill him. That was David's life. (laughs) That, that's, that, that was how he lived. Like, hey, father-in-law, why do you have a spear in your hand? Oh, no, you're trying to kill me again. Just day after day. See, here's why I bring this up. Because we often believe that if we have experienced pain from our youth, then we're destined to bring it to others. But it does not need to be so. It does not need to be so. See, David, growing up, And even in his 20s, he was deprived of place. He was deprived of provision. He was deprived of privilege. And yet, David instead shows a complete reversal. You would think after David had this time of just horror growing up that he would say, now I'm going to show everybody. He doesn't do that. He says, you know what? I'm going to show people the exact opposite of what I experienced. Nobody showed me kindness and love, but I'm going to show them kindness and love. Nobody provided for me, but I'm going to provide for them. Here's David. It took years and years of waiting on God to get to where he's at. And yet once he's there, he gives freely. 
He gives freely. Why? Because he knew the kindness that God had shown towards him. And this, friends, this is the ingredient. And that is why lastly in this story, what we see is a, is a portrait, a picture for our hearts to see. And what is that? Well, I suggest to you that when you read this story, I want you to see yourself in Mephibosheth. We are him. Spiritually speaking, we are in his position. We are lost and broken sinners. We are weak. We are spiritually poor and fearful before a holy God. We are unable to carry ourselves, unable to walk. We are separated from God because of our wicked ancestors and by our own choices. We are distant because we don't know God's love and we are helpless and we have no claim on God and we hide in fear. That's us in our natural state. And yet in David, we see a picture of Christ, the king of kindness. Jesus Christ is the king of kindness. For any one of us who's saying, okay, that's great. That's a nice idea about how we're to love people sacrificially. But how do we do that? I've never experienced that. You experience that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of kindness. What has he done for you? Simply this. He seeks your good. Even when you were not looking for God, he was searching for you. You didn't make the first move. God made the first move. When we were not looking for him, he initiated. That's what Romans 1 says. We weren't looking after God. He was looking for us. Showing us that God's love does not look for the deserving. God is not looking on planet earth right now saying, oh, who's a good little boy and little girl that I could show my grace to? He's not saying that. He knows that the whole world is dead in sin and he's giving himself, he's giving grace to the undeserving. We, like Mephibosheth, are helpless and we have no claim on God. And yet, nonetheless, God seeks our good and he has sought our good in Jesus Christ. I know that might be hard for some of you to hear because right now you are going through a difficult season. You are going through a season where circumstances in your life are painful. They are difficult. Maybe you're suffering. I don't know. It might be physically. It might be relationally. Whatever it is, you reading that phrase, God seeks our good, might be a little hard to swallow at this time. But let me tell you, it is absolutely true. I don't know why you're going through a time of suffering. I don't know why you are going through a time of difficulty. I don't know why you are going through a time of pain. I don't know why. In the mystery of God, I don't know why. But the answer cannot be that Christ doesn't love you. Whatever the answer might be, whatever in God's sovereignty the answer might be for why you are experiencing pain and suffering and difficulty, friends, the answer cannot be that God doesn't love you. Because when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, what we see is a savior who has gone to the most incredible lengths for our good. And so today, as we even reflect on the gospel and we take communion, remember that whatever questions you have, the answer cannot be that God does not love you. He sought your good. He went to the cross even when you weren't looking for it. But there's more than that. He, like David, calms your fears. How? He calls us by name. God knows your name he knows every intimate detail of your life. We're told that he even knows and numbers the hairs on your head. He knows your name. In fact, if you're a believer, your name is written in the book of life. God knows you intimately and then he gives you the command, do not fear. And did you know that that is the most frequent command in the entire Bible? Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid over and over and over again. Just like David said to Mephibosheth, God says to us, do not be afraid. I calm your fears. I know you. I am with you. Now that phrase, do not be afraid, it would be meaningless unless there was a reason not to fear. And we have a reason not to fear because our God is not only with us, he is for us. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, he's like, what? my translation. <laughs> Romans 8, he's like, what? what? What can the world do? What can famine or nakedness or peril or sword or suffering or angels or principalities, what can they do if Christ is for us? Who could be against us? That is the victory that we have in Jesus because of his kindness. And more than that, he removes your disgrace. It means that you and I no longer need to hide. And some of you today are in a place of hiding. You're just in the shadows 
my gosh, I'm just so ashamed of my sin, and I know what it's like to be in the shadows. Before I came to Christ, like many of you, I did things that were such a disgrace. Such a disgrace that even before I was a Christian, I was ashamed to even talk about them. And I wondered, what would I do with that? I just tried to bury it, and it wasn't until I heard the gospel of Christ. It wasn't until I believed and the Holy Spirit opened up my heart and I was saved and I was just like weeping and just rejoicing over the fact that I could be given, that I could now speak about my past because Jesus Christ has removed my disgrace. I could speak about what kept me in the shadows because Jesus Christ has brought me into the light. I can speak about what I did when I was a foreigner in ex- exile because now Jesus Christ has made me a son. Those those past, though we learn from the past, we don't live in the past, and the past no longer defines us. Our sin no longer defines us. Our Savior defines us. He removes your disgrace. And this took place when he went to the cross for you. He took it upon himself. All the, the shame that our sin deserves, he took it. So that means you and I, we can come boldly into the presence of God in our broken state, believing that you are his, believing that you are loved. And it goes even farther than that. He restores your loss. He brings back what was lost in our hiding, what was lost in our sinful state. Whatever it is that we ruined, our our innocence, purity, whatever it is that it was lost, he brings it back for us in Christ because in Jesus Christ, the gospel reverses the effects of the fall. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, you find these staggering statements where Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death for the former things will have passed away. Behold, he says, I make all things new. That means no longer are we to live in spiritual poverty. We are to live in privilege. Now, like Mephibosheth, our weaknesses may not always immediately disappear, but we have the down payment that says one day they will. That our struggles and our sins and our failures, they will not have the last word. Jesus Christ will have the last word. Because that Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose again from the dead, it was the beginning of the end for everything wrong that is in this world. And it's only a matter of time before we see all things new. And when you think about the future, you don't need to fear because lastly, he guarantees your future. He guarantees your future just like David comforted Mephibosheth saying, I'm gonna take care of you from one generation to the next. We are given an ultimate inheritance in Jesus Christ. See, if you and I were left to the inheritance that we deserve because of our sin, we'd be lost forever in the power of hell. But God didn't leave us there. In his kindness, he came to rescue us and he came to save us. That is the truth of the gospel. Some of you might have, maybe you've never received Christ. Maybe you've never accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior. And maybe you woke up this morning and came to church. You're like, man, I just need a word. Here's the word. Jesus Christ is your Savior. Believe. That is the word of God to you. You are called to believe so that you can know this and experience this. And it's not based on what you have done, but what Christ has done. And that's why Paul the Apostle could say this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing mouthful. I mean, do you see what's happening there in that paragraph? Like when you wonder, oh, what's eternity going to be like? What what does God have planned for me? God says, oh, you know, just a little something called in the coming ages, I'm going to show the the immeasurable riches of my grace and kindness towards you and Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is our inheritance. That is our future. And we will one day eat at Christ's table. In fact, Jesus said to his own disciples that they would actually sit at the table. In Luke 22, he said, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. See, we can see in Mephibosheth the attitude that we should all have concerning our response. 
You read all of this. This is, this is amazing. How do we respond? Mephibosheth wasn't in a place where he said, oh, David, that's so humbling. But you know what? Let me go back to my house. I'll, I'll get my stuff sorted out. I'll, I'll grow my own crops. I'll raise enough money. And then one day I'll pay a fee and I'll get into your, your, your wonderful palace. It would have been ridiculous. Mephibosheth's state was so dire that he could do nothing. So all he had left to do was just receive. And yet you and I make this tragic mistake in thinking that we can actually do something to earn this. God presents his grace to us and we say, oh, well, God, that's so amazing. It's really humbling, but you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like get my act together. Just give me three weeks. How many times have we done that in church? God, give me three weeks. I'm just gonna crush it in my spiritual life. You just wait and see. And once you do, those pearly gates will just open wide for me because heaven will say, Wow. <laughs> He really did change. (laughs) That is our attitude. Let's be honest. We think of that. We're like, oh, and if you are in that position, then you don't see sin for what it truly is. If that's your attitude, you only have a superficial vision of sin. You think it's not all that bad, but the story of Mephibosheth shows us in a pictorial way, it really is that bad. The problem of sin is far worse than you can think, but the solution of Jesus is far greater than you can imagine. And it's when you realize how deep and how dire the situation of sin is that you come to appreciate Christ like you never have before. And it leaves us in a place like Mephibosheth, just simply receiving. Just falling on our faces, prostrate and saying, God, I just receive. I just receive your love. That's how we should respond. Receive his love and reflect his love. So because we have a place at his table, We can come boldly, we can ask, we can seek, we can knock. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, we've been given a place of privilege. So what is it that you have need of? What is it that you're concerned about? These aren't just small things. These are things which Christ himself is concerned. And when you understand his kindness, you won't withhold anything from him. You'll come to him and say, God, you're so kind. You are the definition and description and demonstration of loving kindness. And therefore, I bring my problem to you. I bring my situation to you. I bring my marriage to you. I bring my children to you. I bring my job to you. I bring this church to you. Because you see the kindness of God. See, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I realize this that those who appreciate the kindness of God most are those who know they deserve it the least. I don't know about you, but I do not deserve one shred of God's kindness. And it's because of that that I have a ton of joy in my life (laughs) because he's given it to me. Because I know I deserve nothing. You deserve nothing. And yet he's given us everything. We should be amazed. Like, how could he do that? God, how could you do that for us lost sinners? And God would say something like this. Well, I can do that because like David, I have found a reason outside of you. I have found a reason outside of our situation. My kindness is extended to you, God would say, because of another. And that other is Jesus Christ himself, who was great, yet who became small who was mighty and yet who became weak to heal us. And church, this is why we can love others. This is why we can love those difficult people in the church and they're there. You might even be one of them, (laughs) right? Difficult people are always others, but eh, you might actually be that person today. We can love others. We can actually do this. Why? On account of Christ, because of Christ. See, if you live with yourself as being first, if you live with yourself as being at the center of the universe, you're always gonna want something from people. You'll have this greed in your heart, like what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? Where's the love that you're gonna show to me? If you live with yourself as first or with a religious frame of mind, you're always gonna want something from people. But if you live with Christ as first, you're always gonna want something for people. You're going to look at them and you're going to look at their needs and you're going to wonder, how can, how can I share the love of Christ with them? How can I share the good news with them? How can I show them kindness? See, to the woman that day who was cleansing the sores of a leper in India, the cameraman bluntly said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And he was probably shocked by the first answer when the woman said, neither would I. 
But that cameraman was probably equally shocked by her second answer. She said, I would not do this for a million dollars, but for Christ, I gladly, I gladly would. For Christ, I would gladly do it. Church, this is to be how we function in this church. Love because you are loved. Seek because you have been sought. Give because you have been given to. So church, here's my charge to you. I want you to find people who cannot love you back and love them like Christ. Think today, think tomorrow, think this week, whether it's in this church or outside of these walls, go love someone who cannot love you back. And in doing so, you reflect the love of Christ to a broken world gladly announcing the good news that because of this truth, you can go out across the coastlands and you can say, there is a place for you at the king's table. You were afar off, you were dead in sin, but Jesus Christ came and he opened up a place for you at his table. The invitation has gone out and you and I are his messengers. So will you and I rejoice in this love that Christ has shown us? Will we rejoice in the love that has quite literally changed our lives? And will we reflect that to others? Will we go out and love others for Christ's sake, even though they do not love us back? Will we do that? For in doing so, we will show that we truly belong to Christ. Amen? Let's do that now. Father, we ask right now that by the power of your spirit, that you would touch on those areas of our heart that may perhaps be even callous, to this. Maybe we have been wounded. Maybe we have been hurt by the lack of love shown to us by others. God, I pray that that would not diminish the love that you have shown to us. So Lord, for those of us struggling with showing love to others, may we look to the love you've shown to us. For those of us perhaps unwilling to open up our hearts, maybe to people in this very room, God, open our hearts, melt our hearts, and reform them with the love of Christ. Holy Spirit, would you do what Scripture says you do and pour out the love of Christ in our hearts right now? Lord, if there are some here who are just living in the shadows, condemned by their sin, afraid to bring it to you, I pray that they would know right now the only thing that they should be afraid of is staying in their sin. But they do not need to fear confessing their sin because Jesus, you died for their sin. So may we not hold back. May we come boldly to you. And may we ask together as a church, God, make us a loving people. Make us a radically loving people. May we go out, search out, seek out. May we even ask today, who in the camp of the enemy can I show love to because Christ has shown love to me? Holy Spirit, would you fall in this place and do that work in us for Christ's sake and in his name we ask, amen.